Hello, comrades and friends. This is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Uh, I am Rob, coming to you again today from the Bunker Studio. Uh, our guest today is Atenre Elende. Uh, he is the founder and executive director of Delaware Can. He's also the founder of Teen Sharp. Uh, and I hope he's going to level set me on uh, some education issues as I learn more and more about it. Uh, but I wanted to uh, welcome him to the podcast. Thanks for doing it. Well, well thanks for uh, having me. I think I just want to uh, correct a few things as we get kicked off. So I am the I am the founder uh, and former executive director of Delaware. Ah. Um, I'm a senior advisor um, right now, but uh, I was happy to uh, pass the baton to Daniel Walker on June on July one. <laughs> um, so ah. I'm still involved. Um, it's uh, one of my babies. It's something that I I founded, and I am um, and I'm a co-founder over at Teen Sharp, um, where I'm spending a lot of my time as well. Cool. Well, before we get into the details of founding those organizations and what they do, let's just talk a little bit about your background, um, sort of where you grew up, uh, and how maybe some of those experiences led you to to advocacy. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm uh, I was born in Philadelphia, but um, uh, uh, born in Philadelphia and then moved um, pretty early um, to uh, Willingboro, New Jersey, so southern New Jersey. Um, where I lived, uh, I've moved around as, as you'll hear, um, but I lived there um, for the longest period of time. So I lived in Willingboro, New Jersey. Um, I've also lived in Northern Jersey, Central Jersey. I moved around a bit, um, and uh, and yeah, I mean that's that's where I got my start. I think one of the things that is that really kind of you talked about what uh, has been life changing for me. I mean, my mother. One thing that I share a lot is that my mother um, is just a different kind of thinker, different kind of person. Um, I, I used to call it crazy, but she says I shouldn't do that and <laughs> use that word. Uh, but she's just, she's just, she is, um, uh, she's driven and uh, goes to her own beat. Uh, and um, when I was younger, one of the kind of more formative experiences for me in our house in Willingboro, New, New Jersey, um, uh, is a picture I have with Stokely Carmichael um, in my house. And, so thinking about my mother had you know gave me this name Atenrekun Aline, um, which is an ancient Egyptian name. So my mother was always really big on Egyptology and just affirming kind of the beauty and the brilliance um, of of blackness. Uh, and then you you know then that kind of treasured picture I have with Stokely Carmichael. Um, those are the kind of uh, people that were that were in I was in proximity close proximity to when I was younger. And so I knew my mother was like that. Um, and she always is very Afrocentric, um, but it got real uh, when I got to uh, after eighth grade in New Jersey. My mother said, "I'm sending you to school in in West Africa." I'm like, uh, <laughs> are you serious? Uh, yeah. So she sent me to West Africa. I'm this kid that never left the country before. I've been on a plane once um, to California, and uh, now I'm on a plane going to Ghana uh, uh, to boarding school in Ghana, uh, Achimota. Um, secondary school uh, where I went to for high school, basically, and then uh, I came back later after for college. Oh, nice. Uh, we actually have a very close friend of mine uh, who uh, I talked to on the podcast. And I just we just published it. Uh, he's from Ghana. He emigrated uh, to the U.S. about 15 years ago, uh, but he talked a lot about um, 
he still works with the schools there and, and making sure that uh, especially kids um, uh, and girls have the uh, have the, the the uniforms they need, have the supplies they need, and talked a lot about the the educational structure in Ghana. So it's cool that you he went and he and he finished school there too and didn't come till he was an adult. So. Yeah, he had the same experience, I guess, sort of in that uh, that boarding school secondary education that they have, which is, um, from what I understand, quite uh, exceptional. Yeah, it's. I mean, so that so the piece to me that connects, obviously, the work that I end up doing education. So I was a top student back here, and then I got there, and I was behind in math, behind in science, um, and it's a very it's a very different style of education, right? So there was at some point a dishonor list um, that they posted for the whole school to see. Um, um, you know, there was a, there was a, a one 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 semester where uh, every for every um, red circle, which is kind of like a D or or lower, that you got, they came to your classroom and they came. They, you know, I had one that that uh, semester, uh, and they came to the class and said, "Okay, you're going to the school farm to uproot a tree <laughs> for every circle you had." Uh, and that was the last probably bad grade I ever had in my life, um, and so. It was just really intense, um, but I kind of got to see the global piece of education, right? Like thinking I was like, you know, all stellar here, but realizing that, um, you know, I had these gaps academically. Um, but also, um, there wasn't really just like punitive. I know that part, um, you know, it sounds kind of um, different from what we experienced here, but I really started loving learning and owning my own learning because my mom was here uh, in America, right? And so I didn't have that you know, person that could say like, get your work done. I really had to start figuring out things for, you know, for myself. Um, and what I did find in school was a community, just a community of peers that just love learning. Um, so I was majoring in economics there, literature and government. So those are some things that I started really getting into. That's cool. What, um, so when you came back, um, and I guess you had attended university here in the States, um, how did that lead you to to uh, sort of educational issues uh, and 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 schooling and all of that? How how did that sort of uh, progress? Yeah, um, I've fallen into a lot of things. I, mean, I planned to be a lawyer. <laughs> that was the plan uh, at some point. Um, I went to I came back. I went to Rutgers University in Camden, and uh, I was an economics major and a religion, a double major, economics and religion. And uh, so I, I I planned to go to law school. Um, but then kind of at the end of my, uh, my undergraduate, um, um, studies, I start I took, I started taking master's classes, uh, in public administration. So I did an MPA degree and while I was an MPA program uh, where I met my wife, uh, Tatiana, and she came from Ukraine on a fellowship, uh, that's where we met. Um, I started getting involved with data. Um, so I was, uh, working for a think tank that was doing crime data in the city of Camden. So I was, you know, we were entering, wife and I now, my wife and I were entering aggregate assaults data, uh, murder, right? And trying to help with crime suppression in the city of Camden. At that year was the most dangerous city rated, the most dangerous city in the United States. So I was getting a lot a lot more involved in community um, at like, you know, from a criminal justice standpoint. And you will, you know, quickly find obviously the education, the intersection with education and criminal justice. And so I just started getting getting more involved um, with that, so I was making uh, a career for myself in in research and data uh, right after undergrad and my master's program. Um, but my community involvement efforts were really around um, you know education. Uh, and so somewhere in that process in 2009, uh, my wife and I started Teen Sharp. So we started Teen Sharp 
um, when we were still in Camden. And, um, you know, our, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of had success in higher education, but a lot of it wasn't through legacy of privilege. Right? Like my mom had a college degree after I had a college degree. Um, so I started just um, thinking like, what can I do for people that are in my, uh, in my, in my, in my, in my sphere. So at my church, there were young people at my church. So we, I mean, we started Teen Sharp. I mean, I was in higher education. I just have, both of us have a community service ethic and we were in grad school. I was actually at grad school at the University of Delaware uh, doing a PhD in political science and international relations. And, you know, I'm still very active in my, in my church. Um, but I was, you know, I, I started actually with my wife and I were mentoring my niece uh, Maya, um, and she was in high school at the time, or starting high school. And, you know, we felt like, okay, we're doing this for Maya. Can we do this for a few more students? Um, so we started, you know, we said, like, let's start something small. We're busy. So, like, maybe we can do something manageable. We're in grad school. Um, let's do two and a half, two, two, two to you know, three hours or so uh, every other Saturday, um, just to kind of impart our wisdom, our advice. Um, and, you know, we felt like we weren't there are people in our area that were, you know, struggling in high school, trying to figure things out and we could do more. So it started really, I didn't plan that we'd be doing it 11 years later, <laughs> but uh, we started something there and, uh, and now it's, it's still going. Cool. Well, I want to get into this because this is the, this is the topic that I think I have a lot of feelings about it, but again, I don't know whether I uh, know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Um, I, I look at a lot of the edu of the nonprofit sort of, uh, educational groups in Delaware as, as, as mostly, I don't even want to say mostly, but, but with a, with a strong focus on charter schools. Okay. Um, and my view of charter schools is, is basically, uh, negative. Okay. But be, but it's negative because I am not sure that I understand all the moving parts. Um, I I am someone who prefers in, in any kind of in, in, in any kind of interjection into society to to work on any kind of injustice or, or inequity would would need to be universal for it to work. And and I look at just the idea of charters and the selection process, whether it be lottery application. Um, parent contracts or other things or, or any kind of specialized sort of filtering um, as in its nature, not universal. And, and so already sort of you're set up to maybe not fail with that project, but not necessarily make larger gains. And so I'm, I'm sort of wondering if, if my, if my belief that a lot of the nonprofit or or activism advocacy education work is charter focused in Delaware. If it isn't, I'd like to know that, and I'd also like to know sort of what the charter setup is and and what your what your focus is and what your take on all that is. Sure. So I talked a little about Teen Sharp. I started Delaware Can in January of 2017, and that was after 150 plus conversations around the state about education. Um, and really, I was at the Department of Ed, so I came to Delaware in 2012 as a data nerd, talked about my data background, um, on a fellowship with Harvard that said, let's put some data people in education to help shape policymaking. So it's not just um, opinion-based uh, and so forth. Um, so I was at the DOE from 2012 to 2016, and the part that was really frustrating to me um, were just like the status quo politics, the inertia 
Um, even though I was working full time at the DOE, I still spend my Saturdays uh, for the last decade with Team Sharp and with families and with students. So I get to hear their real needs, what's going on in the school system. And I felt like in Delaware, unlike Philly and other places where I've been, there just it wasn't that grassroots pressure and push. Um, you'd have meetings that were unattended, all, you know, just um, it, really the status quo players, interest groups that, you know, are there at the table really had had a field day when it came to decision making. Um, Delaware Canon, we launched in January 2017. Um, you know, we are uh, an education advocacy organization that is the goal is to empower and to mobilize everyday Delawareans. Um, so now uh, we, you know, we've gotten, you know, education, as you were, you were talking about it, and I'm, I'm glad to be on this to talk about it. Like, there's just such weird um, buckets people get placed into. As soon as I launched Delaware Can, right, because we were part of a national organization called 50 Can, um, which has, you know, brand in some places as being kind of very charter-centered, everyone tried to throw labels, right? Like, oh, you're a corporate reformer, right? You're, you know, DOE bureaucrat, whatever they were trying to put. And I, and I said, you know, I, I think it's that's going to be hard because I don't really fit those labels and neither will a Delaware can. So for example, um, for us, uh, I'll get into charters. Um, I certainly, I'm a big, I'm a proponent of school choice. Um, I really don't um, care school type, right? I mean, we can talk about that, right? Whether it's a magnet school, whether it's a vocational school, charter school, traditional district school. Um, I really, uh, you know, we students and families need great schools for their children. Uh, we can talk about what what is that my definition of great school uh, and so i don't i'm agnostic to type um but i do but I, but one thing i will say is uh wealthy families in this country privileged families in this country white families in this country have had for uh, a long time uh choice right they have um have had uh, you know they'll just get up and move to another area right we know you can talk about the case of reparations you can talk about the history redlining and all that stuff we, we know how much housing the market has been constrained and blocked off for people of color, black people specifically in this country. And so we know that our schools are determined, right? So you're, what you're saying is I should go to the school, right? That has no lottery, has no, any, right? That's just like the, the school that is in, that I'm my, my feeder school. And so uh, if we, if we weren't to have charters, which came in the nineties, right? You were, you know, basically had a monopoly, right? So you had, you go, uh, if, if you can't afford private school, um, then you go to your feeder school. But we know that the, the, the way we set up in this country schooling and funding for schools, it's assigned to my area that is also where there's a concentration of poverty. So what is that going to lead to? You're going to have schools that are underfunded. You're going to have schools where there's concentration of need. You're going to have schools for all the reasons I can walk through around teacher quality where you have, you know, you have the, a lot of times the best teachers, you know, going into uh, areas with less need. Uh, all of that, right? Higher teacher turnover rates, all that is happening. And you're telling me that me and my black sons and daughter, right, or whatever else, right, that you have to go to the area where you live. Uh, and so without the the kind of advent of school choice and charter schools, you were uh, locked into that place. And a lot of families felt felt trapped, right? They felt like they didn't have agency. They felt like they didn't have voice. They felt like they couldn't get certain things that, that are customized also to their need. And so um, I, and, and we still see it happen. I had someone who's pretty anti-charter talk to me uh, a few years ago. And um, this is when the Christina School District referendum was kind of happening. This person's really active in that and said, listen, like if the Christina School District doesn't pass the referendum, right? That, and they were living in Newark. 
and and that's going to mean my children's schools are not going to have the resources. This is not a high. This is not a high poverty area. Right? This is Newark. Uh, I'm going to move to Pennsylvania. And it didn't pass at the time, and the person moved to Pennsylvania. And I'm like, but you you don't like charter schools, but you can just up and move your house to go find a better uh, school. And so that is the part that is uh, offensive to me. That uh, what do you want? I understand the need, right? So I, I get the need that it feels like well, if people can just go wherever they want, right? There's going to be um, disinvestment into the neighborhood schools. Um, so I get the tensions, and what I say all the time is why you know people want to put boxes, but to be a person of color, a black person in this country, is to always have kind of these poor trade, you know, these trade offs that are not really great on either either side. Yeah, no, I, what you're saying, I, I, I mean, the fact of the matter is that. Um, because of the things that you're saying, which are all true, uh, that that zip code, you know, you can you can look at uh, at uh, educational outcome by zip code by the, by where the money is, uh, and in, in Delaware, and I've said it over and over again. I mean, people either you know affluent people send their kids to Tattnall, Tower Hill, friends, uh, or they move to Unionville, Chad's Ford, and and their property taxes are, as you said, are are basically another privilege that they can you know, offset whatever the tuition would be, you know, all of that is, is accurate and something needs to be done about that. I'm uncomfortable with this because I had another conversation with the, another, uh, education group in, in, in Delaware and they use the same thing about choice. And I can't get out of my mind this idea. I do, do, have done a lot of studying about Mount Pellerin and the Chicago school of economists and Milton Friedman and all of this, all the, all the reactionary DuPonts that we, that we all hate. Uh, but that was their that was their shorthand for um, the way that the market you know if you have choice the idea of choice then you have it Milton Freeman very uh, famously or infamously said you know it's not that you 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 can't have the Ferrari you choose not to have the Ferrari well that's not necessarily true um, I don't think uh, you know there are other material forces involved. Uh, in how the market works, and it's not simply a choice to do one thing or the other. So I'm, I'm, I'm just really, I, I get uncomfortable with using the, the, using the idea of, of choice uh, as an argument when I know that that idea is sort of a, a market-driven sort of reactionary idea. But that doesn't mean that the other things that you said are untrue because they're obviously true. Um, so the question that then becomes for me is do we address those inequities that you talked about uh, by setting up a uh, a separate sort of niche culture in different places that serve particular needs or serve particular kinds of parents or serve particular students? And then where does that go? What's that? What's that? So now we now we have sort of a I don't want to call it a band aid, but a, a new we have a, a, you know we're trying to do these creative solutions, but all we've done is then create new niches uh, and. We haven't addressed the the all of the litany of problems that you you listed at the beginning. So yeah, I, I, that's that's sort of where I'm coming from. I don't I don't know. I, I don't mean I don't know what your reaction to that is. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think you have to do both. And right, I mean this is this is uh, um, you know the challenge is so what you know I have children now, right? I didn't have children, but I started this dirty about education policy and advocacy, um, and I have a five year old. Um, a two-year-old and a one-year-old. And so now I, you know, I, this is the first year I had to think about school choice, actually like school choice from a standpoint, not from early childhood standpoint, from kindergarten. So when you think about this, these are the, you know, these are questions of parent. Do I, is my child a public good? Right? One writer said this before, uh, Robert Pendicio is actually a conservative writer, said, 
um, you know, should we treat children as if they're public goods? So should I, for example, say, well, because of my, you know, I'm fighting the fight, my child needs to go to a school that I feel is not going, is not uh, up to par, right? Because I want, you know, so the narrative is like, let's go to that school and let's kind of fight together. Um, and what, what my life is proving right now is that I can do both. I, I can at least um, also advocate for all schools while making sure that my child um, doesn't have to take um, certain hits that I feel like will, will happen uh, in a school that uh, is not set up to acknowledge and support all of her gifts and talents and brilliance um, for, for my, my five-year-old, for example. And so I think you have to, you know, you cannot say to people right now, like, hold on while we get the system, you know, we, we uh, you know, do this long fight right, against the status quo, <laughs> hold on. Um, and you kids, you kids of color, you low-income kids, you stay here, right? Um, and, um, you know, because we have to look at what's happening, right? We have to look at schools um, like Bayard, where you're seeing 3% um, proficiency, 4% proficiency in math, for example, right? You have to look at um, graduation rates. You have to look at, um, uh, you know, the system has really been set up. Like we look at other systems right now, people are talking about policing, right? A lot of progressives are, right? Defund the police, dismantle the police. Like, but in that system, for some reason, there's an, a sense that we can't trust this system to do everything right by us. But then on the public education side, set of things, we're supposed to trust the kind of traditional system to meet um, all of our needs with just a little, you know, with just a little more dollars, right, or whatever, you know, more money is going to do it. And so it does need, so it does, I believe certain parts need uh, innovation, they need disruption. Um, you've seen it. I mean, you look and look at William Penn, right? So um, I, I, you know, and I'm not a, like an all market type guy, right? But you can look at William Penn, they were bleeding students, right, as charters uh, started to come. Uh, and they started to relook, like take a different look at their structure, right? Because they're the largest high school in the state. They started this this kind of um, small school model within the big school, right? We have colleges in their school, and you know you get different focus areas, and um, they kind of increase their career pathways and those kind of things. So they innovated in response to um, the the numbers that are going down, and as a result, um, that you know they're not that that's they're turning that around, right? Then you can look at Christina School District, uh, which uh, has been dysfunctional for a long time, and they are leading uh, people to to charters, uh, right, and other other places um, to a point where it's it's harming them, and they're not yet um, making different decisions, right, about it. Okay, so um, th I mean, so those are some of the things that uh, I wrestle with. That I think, you know, there are some positives of allowing for uh, parents to have choice, but I don't want to act as if the market just works beautifully, right? So, yeah. th for example, that's why. I've been I've written about this and we've advocated for how do we make the school choice process more equitable. Um, when I came to Delaware, you have these unique circumstances. A lot of places I've been, the, the school choice and charter market is mostly like low-income parents trying to find right another option. Um, here I got here and I was like, what is this charter school Wilmington thing? <laughs> like school that is predominantly uh, middle class, affluent, white, Asian. And, and then the barriers, right? Newark Charter, those dynamics. So those are unique to Delaware. But I think one thing that I hear when I talk to a lot of progressives um, is like they they take those three or four charters, right? Newark Charter, MOT, um, Charter School Wilmington, and they broad brush all the, you know, the East Side Charters of the world, right? The uh, uh, Charter School of Newcastle of the world, the Aspida, right? La Aspida. So, and those schools don't have some of the, like, the barriers that, everyone is kind of lamenting. Um, there's not a, like a, you know, they don't even do lottery because they don't, they have under, sometimes under uh, enrollment, you know, under subscribed. So 
I think that's one big problem that everyone thinks about Charter School Wilmington, and they haven't stepped foot in. You know, Aaron Bass is the CEO of, of Eastside Charter School School, and seen their Apex program and their Honors program and what they're actually doing for students. Yeah, I'm. I'm a little bit. I'm familiar with uh, Pondicio's book, uh, How the Other Half Learns. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, he, he looks at the success network, I guess, uh, in, in New York. And I know in New York, um, you know, it's it's all nonprofit. Uh, it's basically one. I, I, I think and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Is, is the New York system of all nonprofit and 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 uh, oversight from the state level? Is that similar to the Delaware system or do we have a different setup? Yes, yeah, so I'm not as, as familiar with New York's uh, charter system. Um, you know, I know, I know for Del- you know, like I said, I don't know. I know, I know about Success Academy, um, and that, and kind of what uh, all you know, they get a lot of attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, he talks about the Laboratory for Innovation. I, I just, it's, I, I don't think. For example, my challenge uh, would be, you know, the Gates Foundation. Um, I guess in the early aughts. And in over but about 2014, 15, I guess, had spent nearly a billion dollars in different kind of charter programs, um, things like this, and and they had the Rand Corporation do a uh, do a review of that and found it to be a failure at almost every level. And you know, we're talking about the Gates Foundation and the Rand Corporation are not exactly you know pr- progressive uh, bastions, um, but yeah, it just uh, I. I'm I'm really of two minds because everything you're saying is correct. Uh, pe- people should ha- be able to give give their children the best opportunity, uh, the the best way to to learn and thrive, and uh, you know especially if they're uh, have a special gift for whether it's the or the arts or, or or science and math. I just don't the the that part of it doesn't get to the root of the other problem it's just it's creating a it's creating a, another it's creating another separate lane um to, to, that is good you know it's it's a good lane i just don't know whether it's 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 um it's addressing the the issues for everybody you know it's not a universal program uh it's not you know it, it it's not going into christina for example and, and fixing uh, or or buyered or or whatever so yeah i don't i don't know i mean uh, you can, i mean the uh, it depends on how you look at it, right? I think, yes, we the, a lot of the promise of charters being a lab of innovation and the collaboration happening, it hasn't happened in the, the exchange of information. Um, you know, I, I think, I, I start from the, the standpoint that, um, you know, you do need, I, I've been in the system and the system needs a push, right, in many ways, right? So if Christina didn't have to reckon with right now, I mean, look what's happened over in Christina over, I've been, I've been here since 2012, um, but you can go further back at where Christina School District is in terms of the gaps, in terms of what hasn't happened for the city of the students in the city of Wilmington. And you imagine, now imagine that families didn't, you know, they didn't have the pressure of, right? There's a financial and fiscal issue. I mean, the reason, I mean, one of the things that the governor, when he was coming in and saying, here's this MOU, it was the fact that if you look at the high schools and look at all the schools that were in the city, they were a third full, you know? And so that wouldn't have been the case without uh, school choice, right? People would have been in, the, in those schools, in some cases, um, just not having their needs met. Um, but there was that also, that other economic pressure um, that um, is, you know, I think in this case uh, is helpful for, for kind of thinking differently about the district. I also don't, I think sometimes we get wedded to 
we get wedded to the traditional system in a way that is, as I said, when you when you talk about the history of blacks in America, um, you know, the, the, the government system <laughs> has done us wrong in so many different ways. I mean, that's why you, when you think about freedom schools, right? I've been just talking to uh, people from freedom school in Philadelphia, right? You talk about freedom, like we've had to find ways to create different options for ourselves because the traditional system hasn't allowed us um, to do things we need to do. So for example, uh, you know, when we think about the charters, because there was a report that came out, I believe a year or two ago, around the diversity of staff in charter schools is way higher, right? of leadership and of staff are way higher than you'll find in traditional districts, right? You can look around the state of Delaware and look and look at that, right? So some of these places have been also, beyond just some of the things we're talking about, they have been places for like Kumba, right? Kumba, right? which, you know, parents were involved in, right? The arts focus, the African kind of centered focus, right? There's been opportunities to do that in ways that the traditional districts have been resistant to. Um, you can talk about uh, access and power, right? I mean, look at our bo school boards around the state, right? There might be, um, if you think about some of the schools that have a, um, a focus on Spanish, a language like Las Pira, Las, Las Americas, Aspira, for example, and then you look at, so they have creative control over a school like that because of the char chartering ability. Now go look at our school boards and we probably find three Latino, maybe two Latino school members in the whole state it's of Delaware. It's funny, we, we were working on a Delaware call with, uh, with First State Educate, and they okay. did a Hispanic uh, Heritage Month, I think, and, okay. uh, and they did two. We've, we've run one already. But uh, of of Latino, uh, and there's a, a guy on the Milford school board who yeah, is a Latino yeah. guy, and I think that said there was only two in the whole yes. state on school yeah. boards. Yeah, yes. yeah. And so I'm saying that when people when I when people say tell me things about charters, and if you actually take a step back, you realize the hypocrisy of the conversation. So you say, well, charter schools aren't democratic. And I'm like, well, one percent of people vote in school board elections in Delaware, one and a half to two percent. Is that democracy? To, you're telling me that's democratic? Right. So like they'll say things to me about that. Right. Like, well, um, you know, charter schools, they're, they're money. And, you know, I'm like, well, there have been district schools that have kind of mismanaged money. And actually right now there's more uh, in terms of uh, uh, what's required for charter schools to document and audit their finances. And so, like I said, I don't want to make this as if like I am, I'm like the proponent only of charter schools. But I'm saying that a lot of what we will say as arguments for the judicial system fall down when you really dig deeper, that these have not been places where there's any agency for people of color, right? They're not on these boards. Um, you know, and I work with families. This is not just like a political talk, right? Like I work with families who um, right now think about racial justice. I've been working with students all across the state who are trying to push their districts. I have so many examples of students who are, you know, there's just the stuff that they have to experience in schools. And it doesn't mean that in charter schools, they, you know, get always what they need, right? But it's a, a lot of times it's, it's harder, it's easier, right? To kind of push, at, in a, at, a, at a charter school level than some of the resistance they get uh, in uh, our districts, uh, our traditional districts. And so I think about all of those um, kind of things when I think about the system that let's not like romanticize district schools. And and then also sometimes people say, well, charters are causing all this stuff in America. I'm like, they've only been here since the 90s. <laughs> so uh, yeah. the system has been, has been screwed us over for, for, for a long time. Yeah, and, and my position is certainly not, for, first of all, I've said this before, maybe you don't know, I don't I, I don't have kids, and so I, I never, um, you know, I was, I was never involved in that way in any sort of school system or education at all. Um, but even so, I, I, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't defend as democratic, you know, the current system, or defend it as good, the current system, for the reasons that you said, because what you're saying, everything's accurate. My critique, I think, is just that I, 
I don't know if if this is a bridge to fixing it for everyone, or if it's a or if it's a bridge in the other direction, uh, or if it's creating uh, if it, if it's I mean it's it's creating sort of niche things that could serve uh, underserved and and could address inequality in that way for individual students. But are those things scalable to then go ahead and and try to apply them more broadly or, or as broadly as possible in a, in a universal setting? Cause that's, that's my critique of it is not that, not that, Oh, we should just go back to your feeder school and our traditional thing is working because it clearly is not. Oh, that's no question about that. I'm my concern would be is is a charter school in the way that they're done uh, is that a bridge to improvement improvement for everybody or is it a lifeline for a certain group of people? Yeah, I, I think that's my I think that's, that's where I'm that's where come from. Yeah, I guess let's, let's wrestle with it. I think we need a plurality of options, and we do need to think about how they hang together. And so, for me, if I were looking at Wilmington, right, there's twelve thousand kids in, that you think about in the city of Wilmington. Right, that number is so small. Right, so you're thinking about it, um, and so I think about how are we serving them from the standpoint of the charters that that could serve them, the private schools, right? Some of them, um, you know, I have students. There's a program called Light, leading youth through empowerment. Um, Anka Arya, who was a teacher at Edison Charter School for for several years, and was doing this kind of at night, right after work. Uh, right, I think Edison is like the the lowest paid teachers at some point it was in the state. So this guy Anka is doing this at nighttime working with students in the school, preparing them for um, to better to get into better high schools, whether they were Mount Pleasant IB program, right? Um, uh, uh, Cab Calloway, get it, get into uh, kind of magnet schools or charter schools or private schools. Um, so some were going to charter school Wilmington from his program. Some were going to Tattnall, one of my alums from Teen Sharp went to Tattnall. And so I see, I see all of that, right? We, I think we should say there's 12,000 students Right, and these are the different entities that can support them during the school day, right? Because Teen Sharp does all our stuff after school and it's transformative work, right? So I, I think we need to say, what is the education system? And it's m- much more than just, you know, uh, tr- traditional districts and it's much more than just what happens during the school day. Uh, and then like, let's look at all of that and then how, to, what kind of connections are need to be made um, that are student-centered, not adult-centered because when I, my critique about the districts and everything, right? Even in the traditional, in the charters, is like, this is about the student. And so there's 12,000 kids. What is needed if we mapped out, right, from birth, right, into to, to post, you know, post-secondary, um, like, what is, what's the kind of configuration of schooling options in school, right, kind of out of school time and in school time that are needed um, to allow the student to thrive? And then let's stop being so uh, wedded to adult politics such that we block off opportunity for people. Because like I said, for, for Teen Sharp, um, we're doing things where we have students in all, all types of school settings. So Teen Sharp has 700 students or so, um, and we have students all across the state, students that are at, you know from Sussex County, up here from private schools to wherever, right? Homeschool even. And so we don't have to, th- we don't think about it the way that I think the politicians and the, and the you know, the talking heads want to think about education. For us, it's okay. We have a child in front of us. What is going to be the best option for it? And it hasn't always been. There's some times where, for example, we have to wrestle with a kid can go to private school and we know they may get a better a- academic kind of preparation, rigor. Um, they'll get access to privilege, right? Like all this to me is like, when we think about quality, <laughs> what education could do. But then we also know that they may, it may be kind of like racial suicide going to that school, right? They have to deal with all kinds of racial trauma 
to be in that school. And so we have to wrestle with, just like any parent would have to wrestle with, a lot of different factors. And, you know, sometimes it, it is a charter school that's better. Sometimes it's, you know, go, you know, a lot of our students have thrived at Mount Pleasant School, for example, but, you know, in their specific IB program. And so, like I said, I know, I, I you know, we want to get into like the charter nuances, but I think um, from a student-centered place, like what are, do students need? And like, who cares <laughs> whether they're getting it from a homeschool, in my mind, um, or not? Like, let's, but let's make sure, I get the point about, let's make sure there are, their resources, right? So one of the big things Delaware can is, is advocating for and has advocated for is school funding reform. We advocated for school funding transparency so that we can see where the money is at the school level. And then we've also been advocating for a weighted funding formula um, that includes poverty, uh, money for low-income students and English learners. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say hopeful, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad to see that, um, this is starting to come more to the fore. Uh, we've seen some action in the the tax assessment uh, lawsuit. Uh, we've seen the governor who, you know, doesn't do very much, but at least make some statements like he's open to the next General Assembly, uh, possibly looking at funding, uh, different kinds of funding, which is good. Um, I've talked to uh, people like Leo Strine, who has a lot of different sort of radical ideas i think for delaware about making sure that you know that good teachers are, are a place where they could do the best work rather than um you know the best teachers at the best schools making the best money and it just feeds right into the problem that we were talking about so i'm i am happy that it looks like these issues and probably because of a lot of the organizing and advocacy work you and you and your colleagues have done this is starting to get a little bit of momentum um, so I'm, I'm a little bit hopeful, uh, about that. I mean, do you, do you see, uh, the next, uh, you know, year or two as, 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 uh, some breakthroughs potentially? I mean, I think, uh, and credit goes to a lot of the, uh, the, uh, the, the leaders in Wilmington that have been doing this for, for decades, right? Um, so the J streets of the world, BB Cokers, right? So credit goes to, um, we, you know, I'm, I'm, we've been involved, um, and we're trying to make a difference. Um, but there's so many people that have been at this for years that I just want to give uh, credit and honor to for you know, where we are, where we, you know, the, what happened recently with um, additional you know, the, the the settlement. Um, so like I, the part, so I am that part, I think we need the right, when I think about what will change uh, education, you need the right resources. Um, and this doesn't just mean Sometimes I push back. It doesn't just mean like because a lot of times you know you can put more money in the system and the money not you know be used in ways that are are not productive. So I think you need the right resources, but you need to be very transparent about where the money are going. Um, you know, I think that part is important. Um, I the part that needs a lot of push that I spent time working on when I was at the department is on the the the, the people side in the education <laughs> equation, um, and. I've been, I'm very hopeful. The one thing that I'm hopeful about, in addition to um, some of the breakthroughs around school funding, are just like I've been involved with student activism that really took off after George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. Um, and I don't think we're going to see change in Delaware education um, without, like, that needs to be sustained and that needs to be cultivate, cultivated. Um, because just this small state, as someone who's a transplant here, like the pressure has to keep up, right? Like uh, one of our students started this NCCBT Speaks page that was showing kind of the racism 
uh, in the district. Another student started something at MOT Charter School, for example, and it's pushing them. And so, you know, the money can be there um, and we need that, um, but we really need, we have still like big gaps around um, teacher quality in the system, um, teacher retention, um, school boards. Uh, in Delaware County, we started a campaign called Who Runs Our Schools um, a few years ago because if 2% of people continue to vote in school boards, right, like you're going to have money go in the system. You're gonna, you know, and I'm not going to be hopeful in the end because um, you're still going to have backwards decisions being made um, that are going to harm students uh, or limit opportunities for them. So uh, I don't know that I, I get really, I won't really get excited until we, we see just like a wider movement of parents and students um, taking control of the education system, pushing it um, relentlessly. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's something we're huge on. We, uh, I say it all the time. It never stops. The organizing never stops. The agitating never stops. Um, I was happy. I, uh, you're, you're a, a tall fella. So you were, you were about a block in front of me when we had our George, when we had our black lives matter solidarity March in the highlands, uh, in, in the summertime, I saw you up there, but I couldn't get to you. Uh, I was with Kobe, but yeah, we're never going to stop any of that because it's all that pressure, that political pressure, whether it's for education, whether it's for criminal justice reform, uh, whether it's for health care, whatever it's for, that pressure does start to mount and you do, then you're able to exploit when opportunities come, you're able to exploit them. And I, I, I absolutely agree with that. It has nothing, it, it, it it has to be off election cycle. It has to be sustained people pressure all over the place. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. Yeah, I mean, you need, so, uh, you know, I guess when I, I've interviewed a lot of candidates um, for our political action committee, um, and what I will push the progressives on, because I'm very progressive on a lot of things, I think people will probably call me moderate <laughs> on education, um, um, is it's not just money. You know, like I've worked in the system. I've sat across from the table for these districts. I've been, I'm a data guy, so I, so I know where the bodies are buried. Right? Like I, I've looked at all kinds of numbers in the Department of Ed. I've sat at the table. We have accountability conversations. I've seen a lot um, from the work in the department. I've seen a lot then from on the, the side of students, right? Because I have students at every high school probably in the state, public, private. I, you know, I get a lens into the school system that also is rare. And you need... Um, it's not just it's not just money like leadership. We have some leadership, huge leadership deficits in the education system from school boards to superintendents where decisions are made in the best interest of adults. And, you know, you can you can give them more money. You can give them opportunity funding. Right. Um, and hopefully something will sprinkle onto students, <laughs> trickle down the students. Um, but you'll still see um, just bad decision making that is called you know that causes students not to like reach their full potential yeah um so you, you you mentioned the political aspect of this and talking about oversight who makes the decisions and i and i absolutely do believe that there's a political uh, aspect to everything uh but i have a i have a question for you and it's a it's a deep question and you can say as much or as little about it as as you want to um in 2018 uh the president of, I believe he was the president of the Teachers Association, uh, was, well, I mean, in, in pol political parlance, we call it a rat fuck. Uh, but, you know, there was uh, information uh, provided uh, to the news journal about some bad posts. He did bad blog posts like 10 years ago. Um, I mean, everybody uh, f pretty much knows you were involved with that. Um, and then just recently uh, in the Red Clay School Board election, um, there was an issue uh, with Sarah Fulton, 
uh, about some, you know, she was playing politics. Um, she made some calls. She said something very s stupid. Um, and, and that sort of came out too. So we have the Mike Matthews situation in 2018. We had the Sarah Fulton situation this year. Both of the, both of those you sort of, you sort of drove. And I can tell you that I have no particular affinity for Mike Matthews or Sarah Fulton. Um, I, I, I think, you know, and I, I don't really, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not a pacifist, so I, I don't mind a political rat fuck every once in a while either. If the person gets it, that gets it right. My concern is just a broader organizing when you're organizing people, mass movement, uh, and, and you do this kind of stuff. Do you, I mean, do you think that Mike Matthews is sexist? Do you think, do you think that Sarah McBride is a racist? You mean Sarah, Sarah Fulton? Sarah Fulton, excuse me. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Do you know what I mean? It's because that's a dangerous when it's, that's a very, uh, dangerous political move only because, uh, you're sort of weaponizing a thing that probably people don't even believe. Like I, I, I know, I know them both. Like I said, I don't agree with them politically on everything. Um, I don't even really, you know, they're acquaintances of mine. They're not. I wouldn't defend. Or I wouldn't defend anything that they did. I just think it's very dangerous to, to tacitly or implicitly call someone a racist when actually we probably know that they're not. I don't. I, well, one, I don't think I ever called anyone a racist. Uh, uh, I think. So let's talk about both situations. It's funny, the Mike Matthews feels um, ages ago, uh, but let's. let's I know let's I had to. It. It's funny that you said that. I had to look it up, and when I saw it was 2018, I was like, Jesus! I could have thought that was 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So I think the question about uh, Mike Matthews, I think the question, you know, return to you is, did he say racist things? Whenever, whenever, right? The you know, and what's the what's in your mind the statute of limitations of things? So. Um, I, I, I worked with Mike Matthews, right? I said I worked for, I was at the Department of Ed and, and interact with him um, after that. I love that he's down for the cause of, of equity. Um, but I also find it curious, right? That, I mean, he said racist stuff. He said sexist stuff. And um, sure, I'm, I'm, I am all for someone changing, right? He clearly has, has changed. Um, and like, so I'm not going to go and, and, and be the one to call him a racist, but I, but I think anyone, if you look at what he said in the past, you would call it racist, you would call it sexist. And some people who want to, you know, use kitty gloves, right, which happens to white males, right, all the time, we, we know the research on this, could say, well, he was just being edgy, right? Some people said that. They wouldn't, they would, if I said stuff that he said, right, um, 10 years ago, it would be lingering with me for a long time, right? Um, and so I think he did say racist things, and I, and I never said anything, I never, you know, labeled him anything other than, calling out what was said in the past. Um, and and I just found it very curious that uh, mostly white progressives, um, they, you know, they're uncomfortable with the idea, like they have these kind of people that they want to put on pedestal because they say woke things, right? And I'm glad, I love the woke white person, right? Like we need allies. Um, but when woke, when woke white people have either do things in the present or in the past that are problematic, um, you know, how do we see white progressives respond? And we saw that they were like, Mike, we love you. Right. <laughs> yeah. As I said, uh, my position on it is, I, I mean, he's an acquaintance of mine. I've met him maybe t one time or two times. I certainly wouldn't say, Mike, I love you. Or, or I think, and again, and I'm, and I wasn't even, and I still am not very involved in these educational issues. So I couldn't speak on, uh, how he was doing one way or the other. I just don't know whether if a Republican, I, if a Republican did what, uh, 
um, um, what Mike Matthews did at the time earlier, and right. it was it was it was discovered how would white progressives respond? Right, if Del Calo right now, right, Senator Del Calo, I like a lot. Um, if he if he did if that came out right now, they would be they would be like crucifying him and you know, like he's a racist, right? So I just find the things that white progressives struggle with is when it is someone that in their mind is woke and is perfect and is great and is the kind of champion. And I would say he is a champion of, of a lot of things that I, that I believe in, but he has, he never atoned for um, saying racist things. And now he's kind of profiting off of being kind of the woke white guy. And he never really made reparations for saying offensive things that hurt people about Muslims, about women. Right. And so yeah. and white people, and when it came out, white, no white person, no white progressive was like, yeah, he actually should really atone for these things. Uh, it was like, oh, woe is him. Now, if you want to move to Sarah, we can talk about that. Yeah, and I'll just say one last thing. Yeah, I don't, I, I certainly, I mean, everybody's a big boy and a big girl and big and adults. And, and so I, I don't think woe is him. And I, like I said, I, I don't even think I would defend him particularly because what he wrote was what he wrote. Now, again, in, in context, uh, you know, a, a bad post is a little bit different to me than, than something else. But um, I don't have any problem with, as you said, bring, th this is what he said. This is this is the fallout. You know, I, I don't I, I don't have any necessarily I don't object to that part of it because what you're saying is true. I, what I'm saying is that I don't know whether um, whether uh, doing that, whether that's a good, uh, good way to organize people for our causes. Uh, I, I don't I don't know because it, it didn't. Uh, and again, it just has nothing to do with Mike. You know, should we be looking at reasons to uh, uh, to, to get to, to 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 do this kind of thing? And I think in this case, it was political, and that's fine. That's these things happen, as you said. If it was another person who I was a you know a political enemy of, I would probably enjoy it. And and I you know I, I get that. I just don't know whether. And, and as you said, yes, you didn't. Uh, no one came out and said this. This is a racist person or a misogynist or sexist person. Uh, or a homophobe, or or whatever. No one came out and said that, but that's the implication. Uh, and and I and maybe you'll explain it more with with uh, with Sarah Fulton too. And I I just think and I just think that's that strategy, that technique, um, maybe not maybe is not the the most um, you know maybe that's not going to pay off this yeah, idea. I'll, I'll that, say, that, well, let's I, talk I don't about know. Payoff. Let's talk about the Sarah thing and the payoff. I had okay. a friend of mine in another state, black woman who's involved with Democratic Party, write to me that. Um, that Sarah Fulton uh, blog post um, uh, did wonders. She sh they shared it around. There was a black woman that was uh, being undermined in their, you know, their uh, Democratic Party um, committee and what they were working on. And it's out of state, this is out, out of state. state. And the Got post it. was shared around. And this, and I could, if, you know, I don't have the direct quote right now, but it was really like, "Thank you so much for sharing this. This really hit some white women in our in our um, in, in our Democratic Party." When they reflected on the ways that they were, they have been undermining kind of a lot of black women. I've gotten, I got the number of in-state and out-of-state messages I got from mostly black women about how this is so true, um, how these things happen to them all the time by white progressive women, right, white liberal women, white woke women, and men. But uh, a lot of times, that you know, there's a dynamic around women too. That um, you know, I got a lot of great. Uh, uh, feedback from it, and in Delaware, once again, some you know people that a lot of times it was private, a private message about that. I don't, like I said, I don't um, know Sarah uh, that well at all. Um, what I know is um, she tried to use me against a black woman who I also didn't know at the time <laughs> that that well at all. 
Um, and, you know, she was playing politics and yeah. she got burned in that case. Um, and, uh, you know, I really wasn't, sometimes it's people, you know, sometimes I have a bigger political strategy. Like, <laughs> like I said, sometimes I just think some things are just wrong and they're messed up. And I said, I write a lot about um, hypocrisy of the left, right? I'm very left leaning. Um, but I know where I stand with a lot of people who are like, you know, on, on the right, who are, you know, could be racist or whatever else. And I think when you look at MLK, when you look at Malcolm X, they've called us out a lot of times about, you know, that we need to be also worried about uh, liberal white folks who um, use the cloak of certain words and certain things that were said, uh, that are said. But I'm not saying that this means Sarah or anyone is a racist, but I mean that there's work to be done. And, and I always look at, how Sarah responded, how Mike responded in that case shows a lot about allyship, right? I don't, I don't think to this day that Sarah has reached out to Lillian, right, to, to say like, hey, you know what, right? <laughs> like, because you could argue that by Sarah getting in, um, Lillian could be, you know, we talk about what happened with some of the black women um, who ran the primaries, right, and what the success they've had, right? You can advocate that Lillian would be on the board right now, right? Now we have this, the same person that was there, right, because. Uh, Sarah felt that she wasn't qualified or serious enough, right? These are the kind of code words. So you could argue that we've, we've seen this around the world and around the, around the country for years that white people will shoot themselves in the foot, right? Um, but while they're undermining, you know, black candidates, um, saying that they're not competent enough, not qualified, qualified, qualified enough. So um, right now, none of them won, right? She didn't win. Right. Right. Lily I guess that's the, that's the moral of that story is like, it didn't, you know, uh, Sarah, I think, as you said, was playing some ambitious political game and she got called out on it, which I think is fine because I don't it was I, I don't like those kind of games either. So I, I when, when I heard sort of the the sequence of events and phone calls and decisions and close to the deadline and all that, you know, I, I did not like that either. Uh, and then and ultimately nobody won. We just we sent the same person back to the same thing, and just the status quo wins again, and and so you know that was the most disappointing thing for me is you know the, the status quo won again. Um, yeah, people need to be called out. There's 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 no question about it. Um, I just you know when you look at the end and you're like, well, what was the what was the benefit? What was the outcome? And it wasn't you know we didn't get an outcome. For me, uh, you know, a lot of times. I mean, like I said, I I. The outcome for me, I mean, I, I spoke, uh, like, there's, there's things that I think are wrong and, you know, maybe Sarah didn't get any good lessons from it. Maybe some, someone could, right, can think about this, right? Because I, I know, I mean, I've used that article and shared that article. A lot of people, white people who are really trying to reflect, I had white people writing to me at the time, uh, you know, who said how much they were reflecting on things, right? And because this is Delaware, right? I'm not from here. Because it's Delaware, there's so many things that people don't want to say publicly, right? So I get all these like messages a lot of times, right? During the yeah. Mike Matthews thing, during the Sarah thing, I'm like, just write it, write it public. I had people who were writing things on my wall, then deleting them, like, oh my goodness, I, you know, Sarah's, Sarah's boyfriend knows me, and I was like, you know, you're a white ally, okay? You're gonna write to me quietly, but you're gonna delete your message on my wall. So my point is like, this is this stuff. Uh, these are important conversations. So this is not a matter of like, let's throw away Mike Matthews, let's throw away Sarah. Like we need. Um, allies, um, but we also have need allies to not um, to have such a low bar, right? Like you just say something, uh, Black Lives Matter, or you go to a rally, and all of a sudden, you know, like you know, we all should be bowing down. But you're doing things like when it comes down, these are the, the moments, right? When those moments happen, where Sarah had a choice, and she decided that I'm better, and she's going to do the same old things that you know that uh, uh, anyone who wasn't an ally would do, and so. 
I was calling that out because uh, I didn't even know Lillian really at that time. Um, and so it wasn't like, hey, let's like, you know, let's yeah. go endorse Lillian. Uh, and it's not a matter of that. I think only black people should run. Like if Sarah would have come out and it was even running to begin with. Right? right. And there was no other candidate. I'm like, yeah, OK, great. Like, let's let's see how her her her, her merits are compared to the incumbent. And like, it's not like, I mean, all black. Some people took it like only black people should run or you're like, or because you're white, you can't and, and you're talented. You shouldn't. No, it was a matter of how the you know, she's she wrote to me sneakily right, to get intel without giving you know divulging you know her plans and all the history of what had happened so um, when i found it out i just i just didn't like it yeah i you know i i i have a soft spot in my heart for any organizer or activist who does uh who voices his feelings or her feelings publicly uh and doesn't do it privately so i i i, I and doesn't because you know it's it's you know we're supposed to be uh organizing everybody and working in the public sphere and I think you need a little more um, courage or, or political will um, to be able to have these conversations. So I, I, I certainly appreciate that. And I think um, I think your assessment of that situation is, is correct. Um, you know, it, it was just a, a sort of a weird political game for I don't know what reason. Yeah. And I know her. her I guess it's fiance now or her husband. I, I, you know, I know who he works for. I know the guy. I've talked to him, but I'm not going to pretend that 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 was a cool thing to do because it wasn't. Uh, and I think that you're right about that. I just, like I said, I, I'm, I'm more and more lately trying to think about how to get everybody together <laughs> and, 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 and get every, and, and, and because uh, we take a lot of losses and, and we can't, uh, I just talked to a, a group of people who are uh, trying to stand up the DSA chapter in Delaware um, over over some years and, and the kind of organizing that they want to do. And we had the same kind of conversation. You know, all of these groups be, can become very fractious. Uh, can be, you know, can, you know, there's this inner Nicene sort of fire all over the place. And um, we take enough fire from the status quo uh, and, and from the real people who really wield power than to be shooting at each other. Um, but uh, But your assessment of the situation, I think, in both situations is is correct um i my the way i think about it is just more broadly but you know those those two ones i, I think yeah i mean they're, they're not good um and, and we have to do we have to do better and and people who want to be allies or want to stand in solidarity or whatever everybody has to just be better uh, and it is a learning experience because you know when when you do when you do read you know the things that people say um you know whether they uh, understand what they're doing or they don't. They need to assess it. They need to pause, pause, and reassess. Um, so I think that that's that's you know. And and, and I'll say that. So like I, I'm married to a white woman, right? So uh, um, at some point, someone said to me, a black person, right? Like, what if um, someone wrote the things that you wrote about the Sarah situation about your wife? Uh, and I think they were maybe expecting that it was like, oh, we got him, right? <laughs> you called out yeah. his own, and I said. Uh, well, a few things. One, I don't, I, you know, you know, from what I've seen my wife and the learning she's done over the years, I don't think she would have, she would respond in what, in, in the way that happened. But I said, if she did, and, and we woke up one day and someone wrote a piece like that, I'd be like, all right, let's learn the lesson from that. <laughs> because you, yeah. Right. You know, we've got, you know, uh, right. Let's learn the, let's learn the lesson from that. Um, you know, and if it wasn't accurate, if someone wrote something that wasn't accurate, then, you know, then we would also just stand on our own track record and whatever. But uh, if someone wrote something like that and called my wife out, I'd be like, 
you know, okay, like th this is, it's good, right? This is good learning and good lessons. And I wouldn't be the fr fragility that we saw where, you know, you don't reach out to Lillian, right? To figure it out, right? You just go, you know, you go silent. I'm, not, I'm gonna talk to everyone else, but I'm not gonna have a direct conversation with, with you know, Atenre or anybody, right? Um, you know, and I'm going to play victim here. I saw that it happened with the Mike Matthews situation, right? And I said, that's something that um, white people get the, have the privilege to do, right? Like they can, they could have caused some mess or some problem and they get to play the victim, right? And, and, um, and other, and on the other, if it's on the shoes on the other foot, there's just an unforgiving kind of behavior about um, black folks who are working in, in, in the same kind of sphere. So um, that's, there's a fragility piece that doesn't need to, you know, you, you could you could have easily talked to Lillian about it and said you know here's what's you know and it would be a different situation but either way like I said I we we certainly need everyone kind of pushing fighting the fight um, but I just I've written a lot about if people don't pay attention and they're not they're not they're not careful right you can you can think you're doing all the right things right um, but when it when the moment comes you know you're going to choose your own comfort your own protection your own interest your own power. Or accumulating your own power um, versus what's what I think is needed for um, for the the work. Yeah, I am I am disappointed uh, in those situations too when you know a particular person pretends to be a victim. Um, I I do agree that you know <clears throat> regardless of what it is, you should take it at face value and try to. I had a conversation with Sarah about this, and I I said you know can you just take it at face value and be like that was a dumb thing to say. You know, it's like, can't, can't we just, you know, like the the facts of the situation, I think, uh, as as they're laid out, you're, you're correct. This is what happened. Can you learn your lesson at least <laughs> from this? So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel you on that. Yeah. And, I, and I, like I said, I've written about the secretary of education, the governor. I've written about a lot of different things to call out. Um, and one, you know, to, to her credit, Secretary Bunting, I wrote a piece, I think was his 20... 17 um and i said you know basically the kids need convic conviction and not compromise from the governor and from the secretary and i kind of called out um you know the beginning of her her time as secretary that it was it was just too full of compromise uh and not enough conviction and you know she emailed me and said let's talk right and when we had a conversation and i said the same things in person so like i think that that's important in delaware we just need a lot more um you know we need a lot more of of um of that um people not not talking kind of in quiet <laughs> quiet corners not talking in just little private messages like say the thing in the room say the thing if you want to write about it whatever uh, and then don't back down right or don't kind of play victim let's have the conversation um people call me out you know and we have conversations and if i get it wrong um you know i want to i want to talk about it and learn and grow um so that's you know that's kind of where i stand yeah, no, I agree. I mean, we're, these the, the the power structures are not going to be challenged or threatened um, by you know sending private messages to each other telling you how much you liked something or other. You have to do it. You have to do it in public. Uh, you have to do it loudly and with as many people as you can possibly get. So no no question about that. And I think that that you you you've identified. Um, and it probably helped that you you weren't from here originally and did so much other work in other places. Um, you were able to quickly identify one of the things in Delaware because it's insulated uh, and because it, it operates in a particular way um, that those kind of games and that kind of lack of, of political courage uh, actually just plays into the hands of the status quo. 
Um, and we're going to get nowhere if, if we don't, uh, if we don't get out of that. Yeah. So for me, okay. No, go ahead, please. I was going to say, uh, I wrestle, uh, with different, uh, articles that I've written. I certainly, um, you know, it's certainly not easy sometimes, right, to call out certain things. And I'm not just, I'm not talking about the Sarah situation. I'm talking about um, calling general. out governor, policymaker, <laughs> different times where, that are, um, you know, where um, you have people, you know, the people question. Uh, I wrote an article one year, I think, about um, there's this whole move to get people into career pathways in education in Delaware. And I said, I wrote a piece that rich kids don't go to construction jobs, right? And I kind of was just pushing on the inequities in the system. And I got some feedback from people who could be funders or whatever else is like, you know, they, they didn't, they were, you know, they were offended. Um, so I, I reflect on different things I write. I think the, but the thing for me is um, I'm not as worried about, you know, people that don't like me or like what I say. Like for me, if I, if I lose the people that like the families in Teen Sharp, if, they, if I ever went to them and they were like, that was that was not helpful or that was out of line or <laughs> like so like that's my barometer right like i quickly had to identify that when we started delaware can um that um i don't pay attention to a lot of the you know the different blogs and the other things that call me out or have called me out in the past or just have something to say about everything right because i think we we focus on everyday delawareans with, with delaware can so i use that as the barometer and a lot of times the things that everyone else is talking about no one they don't even know it like the real people are like what are you talking about? What happened? Right. So yeah. that kind of puts things in perspective for me. So last thing, uh, new, new general assemblies getting seated, uh, with, uh, in January, it'll have, you know, fingers crossed quite a few of, uh, of our, of our, uh, comrades and, and, co uh, and allies and, and, uh, and colleagues. Uh, what are you looking from an educational standpoint to really push, uh, on, on day one? I, I know that there is a, there's a task force, which I'm, you know, the, the, the whole idea of the task force makes me want to uh, jump off my roof. Um, but I know that there is a, a, an educational task force right now with uh, with Namdi and Tizzy and uh, with the with the with the real estate tax thing coming to a, some sort of conclusion. And some of the words from the governor, do you see any specific legislation that uh, we all need to kind of get behind and do advocacy for? Uh, and, and what kind of things do you expect out of uh, out of this general assembly? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's really I mean it's a scary and exciting time, right? I think there's some exciting things at the local level and, and yeah. potentially scary things at the national level. Um, I, I I mean on the funding front, um, certainly uh, I think people you know I'm part of a coalition that's working on uh, school funding reform are really going to continue to push that. Um, even though the governor, you know, the, the settlement, um, it, it's a settlement, right? So there's there's some positives, but there's still a need in this in this uh, to move away from our traditional unit funding formula, which is you know one of four states that still has this model that money follows adults rather you know people versus the students. Um, so I think that's one thing we're going to continue to push on. Um, you know, I know there's a from Delaware can side of things. You know, there's the pandemic is. <laughs> disrupted what we know education to be. And I think this is on the on the choice side of things, like how do we, um, you know, what are, what do we need to look at as, as kind of a bureaucratic way of doing things that needs to change? Um, you know, for example, you know, people are doing pods now and different kinds of kind of configurations. Um, families that are affluent to my point at the beginning, right, are like, well, we're gonna learn in this little setting and we're gonna have all this, right? Like, so we really have to rethink um, things that are uh, barriers to making sure families right now that are uh, 
have most need um, that they can thrive in this kind of pandemic, post-pandemic or pandemic climate. Yeah. That's something that I think we're thinking about with uh, Delaware Can. Um, some things that we were working on before a lot of things stopped uh, after the, uh, a lot of things kind of got halted by the pandemic. Um, we, around undocumented students, um, we've been talking for years about the need for their for access for we have undocumented students in Delaware who basically get locked out of education, higher education here. Uh, I think with some of the legislators that are coming in, um, there can be some appetite for for doing some things on the higher education side that make it more affordable, accessible. Um, and, you know, that's near and dear to my heart, also for my the teen sharp hat that I wear. Um, so those are some things that are uh, you know of of interest. So I mean, I, I think there's a lot of a lot of interesting possibilities. Um, and there's going to be a lot of great, great energy um, in the in the General Assembly. And you know, I think there's some people that are coming in that are also going to, um, to my point about inertia, right? People have been wedded to, well, this is how we fund schools, right? This is what we're going to, you know, and just not kind of making the bold changes that are needed um, for for students. And I think that that should change significantly this year. Cool. Well, Ray, thanks for uh, taking the time. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope we, we talk again soon. Uh, I know um, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, some some of the undocumented folks. And I know we have a mutual friend, Erica, who yeah. is a, a real um, I, I, I say this to everyone, but I'll say it to you, too, because I know you guys are, are fairly are close. Uh, she's a real inspiration to me, uh, just the way that she uh, the way that she goes about her work. Um, the way that she speaks to people and the way that she organizes. And uh, she's she's someone who's uh, like I, I try to model myself after. And, uh, and, and I know that you work closely with her too. And, um, yeah, it's just, it was, it was nice to be able to talk to you because, uh, she's, she's asked me to, uh, to make sure I, I hooked up with you at some point. So, uh, I'm glad we were able to do that. I am a toot. Erica's always bringing people together. Uh, and Erica's vlog is like, you guys got to talk. They don't, what, you know, and, uh, and so yeah, thank you for, for making time for me. Of there. course. That's what she does. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody. This is a great, uh, great episode. You, yep. Thanks a lot. Bye.